Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CID Student Ambassador Abila Latif interviews Jamil Salmi, Global Tertiary Education Expert. Jamil talks about the role of private sector in advancing tertiary education, about the global regions that have made most progress in terms of improving access to education, and how the regions that are lagging behind can move forward. Jamil also talks about why he remains optimistic and thinks that we are about to witness a revolution in the way we learn. Thank you, Dr. Salmi, for being here with us today. I hear from your wife that you are an exceptional tennis player, but we also hear that you're interested in education. So we're going to ask you a few questions about that and regarding your talk here at the Harvard Center for International Development today. Um, your talk is titled Tertiary Education and the Sustainable Development Goals. Could you touch upon the background to put our listeners into context as to why we're having this conversation today? Well, thank you for having me today. Two years ago, the UN General Secretary set up a task force on how to make education sustainable. And they had many subgroups working on various aspects. And I was, I had the privilege of being asked to write about the financing of tertiary education with regard to the attainment of the sustainable development goals. And That's how I started thinking about the role of tertiary education vis-à-vis -vis the sustainable development goals and how you can find a sustainable financing approach to tertiary education. And my uh, mandate at that time was to produce a 30-page report, but somehow I got carried away and I ended up writing a full book on the the contribution of tertiary education to the sustainable development goals. So that's the genesis of this project and why um, I'm here today. Thank you. So we talk about like the burgeoning private sector in, in education. My question to you is what stake does the private sector have, especially with regard to UN sustainable development goals? Is, is tertiary education just any other emerging market making it an attractive investment for the private sector, or is there something more to it? Well, I think we need to to be specific about various segments within the private sector. So you have, here in the U.S., we've seen over the past 20 years the growth of, uh, the rapid growth of for-profit um, institutions of higher learning from the private sector. University of Phoenix is one of the most famous And then they've moved, like the laureate groups, they've moved to developing countries. So they are present in uh, in Brazil, for example. Um, and there, um, I think they are playing a useful role in providing skills for young people. But I don't think that they are necessarily interested uh, in the sustainable development goals. Then you have a second segment in the private sector of non-profit institutions, depending on The regions, like in Latin America, you have many religious universities, Catholic universities, for example, non-religious private institutions that tend to have high quality. And you see, I understand you went to LOMS as an undergraduate, and that has a very high reputation in, in Pakistan. And these institutions, I believe, play a very important role by providing high-quality education 
and in providing the competencies for the graduates who will contribute to the achievement of the tertiary, of the sustainable development goals. We have to, if we step back and think about the 17 SDGs, they really encompass all aspects of economic and social development from fighting poverty to improving development of the rural sector of agriculture to feed all people in in the country providing uh, potable water uh, renewable energy and and each time you think about these sectors in society or in the economy you have to think about the qualified professionals the at all levels from middle level technicians to engineers to scientists to sociologists who are needed to address all the big challenges that developing countries um, face so to, to to summarize in the in so far as private institutions can contribute to training these people they certainly play a very positive role provided they meet basic quality standards what i'm hearing is this trend of education providing a source of internal supply of labor across the economy in in countries and and you rightly called me out on being a product of private education myself but harping again on the whole private sector question doesn't this pose the peril of heavier investment in regions that pay off, that, that people that can pay, target markets that can pay for education, and, and lower or no investment where education may be needed most, such as poorer areas. Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, many, many years ago said, if you believe education is expensive, try ignorance. <laughs> so I think education today is the best investment that any individual or any country can make as we move towards knowledge-based development in all areas of our life, education is really the key in that direction. Uh, So I don't think it's only a question of investment for emerging markets. I think it's uh, really the basis, the the most important pillar if we want to find innovative solutions to problems that mankind as a whole is facing and that we for which we don't have ready-made solutions we really need to explore and education and research are in my in my eyes the best investment for that purpose thank you for that um which regions of the world have seen the most recent growth um, in tertiary education and which regions the least and what is your advice to both types of regions or countries? In the past 30 years, all regions have increased their investments in tertiary education, and we see a rapid growth of enrollment. But the two regions that stand out as being behind the rest of the world are Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, where the, the needs are still huge. So that's, and we see it also in terms of girls' education. These are the two regions that still, you know, by and large, enrollment are pretty much balanced, except in these two parts of the world. Uh, and now they are the other end. The region that really has expanded is, is East Asia and, and China, certainly. It's interesting to compare. Ten years ago, Brazil was ahead of China today it's the opposite. China has been, I mean, it's the scariest and most impressive uh, part of the world where 
investment in education and the eagerness of people to learn, to study is really remarkable. So what is your advice to the regions of sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, as you mentioned, lagging behind the rest of the world? Well, South Asia, at least the two largest countries, you know, India and Pakistan, have developed strategies. Uh, Pakistan did a big effort in the 2000s. So there was this commission on the future of higher education, much heavier investment for tertiary education between 2002 and perhaps 2010. Um, sadly, the political crisis of the past few years and have seen um, less growth in that area. And India now has this big program to develop what they call institutes of eminence and, and, and really efforts to invest more. I think the challenge, especially in the Indian case, is more about governance. Um, there is a tradition of a bureaucratic, centralized control mechanisms which impede the growth of tertiary education, I believe. As far as sub-Saharan Africa, I think most governments are really committed to improving, but their their challenge is financial. Uh, although I think governance is also a, a big obstacle, but they need to find the resources. You have landlocked countries, very poor countries like Burkina Faso or Mali, or, and then they just don't have the resources, so it's a big challenge. Uh, very rapidly increasing cohorts of secondary school graduates and very limited resources to expand the tertiary education system. And perhaps one of the areas they need to ex to explore is also how to harness online education or to combine perhaps in hybrid models on campus and online education to offer more opportunities. I think that the traditional way of just building new public universities is not going to work because they just don't have the money to build them. Even when they can build them, they will not find the teachers, the professors to to lead the education efforts there. So that's it's it's a huge challenge. And that's where we're coming back to the earlier question about the private sector. If if we can have public-private partnerships where the private sectors play a, a role and then perhaps the government can give scholarships for students to go to choose if they want to go to a public or a private institution. Again, provided you have good quality standards enforced in the private sector. In, in you know, with relevance to current times and political conflicts across the world. What is your advice to countries facing the challenge of large refugee populations across the world, especially in terms of access and equity? This is a huge problem. You have many countries you know, in the Middle East with the Syrian refugees, refugees from Afghanistan, and in, in sub-Saharan Africa with so many conflicts, we have large refugee population. And in some cases, you know, if you look at the Syrian refugees, many of them have already some kind of tertiary education qualification, or they were studying by the, when they had to leave the country rapidly, and then they face the issue of having the financial resources, having a way of getting their qualification recognized. And very often they don't have, that they didn't carry their degree with them, or the language problem. You have many refugees in uh, Syrian and Afghan refugees in Germany, and but the universities teach in German, so they have first to learn the, the language, and it's not an easy language. So I think these are the three main obstacles, funding, language, and recognition of qualification. Now, there are some schemes, the, the civil society is uh, quite active 
We have also examples with uh, the Qatar Foundation helping with Palestinian refugees and Syrian refugees today. And I think it's very important to learn rapidly from good practices here and there and create these networks of to share knowledge and to um, scale up good uh, good experiences. And, and as if you are successful in having uh, kids in primary and secondary education, they will grow to be university age and, and what opportunities are open to them. That's, that's really a pressing issue. And I think that's, that's a new challenge for many countries to think not only about their own domestic population, but about the hundreds, thousands of refugees who need opportunities at the tertiary education level. So the, the most recent Asian Development Outlook report uh, highlights the success of public-private partnerships, and recent research in the educational sector as well supports this premise. So in your experience advising countries across the globe, are you beginning to see this trend of public-private partnership in the education sector? Indeed, I, we don't see enough, but I think there are many promising avenues there. And just two examples, uh, Malaysia, mm-hmm. 15 years ago, set up three universities, private universities, but they were funded with public money. So what the government did is encouraged or advised the top, the big public corporations like the oil corporation to invest and set up a university and then to finance the first three years of running expenditures. But then they would be on their own as private institutions. And that's going quite successful. In my own country, Morocco, we have a university called Al Hawin which means the two brothers in Arabic. And the, the reason is that it was, the funding came from the king of Saudi Arabia and the king of Morocco. Uh, but so it came, you know, it was public money at the beginning, but then it operates, it's a, a US type private university in Ifran and it's been quite successful. So here are examples and that uh, other countries could learn from. Thank you so much, Dr. Salmi. So would you like to share anything else with our audience? And it's totally open. Well, I think these are very exciting times. You know, we, we could look at it from with a pessimistic uh, view about the funding problems, the refugees, the equity issues, dropouts, etc. But at the same time, we have lots of interesting experiences, the MOOCs, the artificial intelligence, medical robots to practice medicine, to simulate. We have software. I was yesterday, I saw, I think it was a biology course and they were, they had a biology club and they have an evening where they were going to solve a mystery. And in fact, you will learn very basic scientific facts, but you apply them to a game kind of environment. And I think we are about to witness a revolution in the way we, we learn. I mean, already with social media, with the internet, the information is, is readily available. And I think that, you know, young people today are what we call the E generation are, um, can be the own drivers of their learning experience. And so I think we, we need to be optimistic about new ways of doing things. There are a lot of, for example, we're talking about refugees. There is somebody in Europe that um, designed an app to link refugees with funding opportunities. So it's kind of crowdsourcing to help uh, refugees using social media and and, and your smartphone. And, I, I, and I, there are quite a few initiatives, you know, in the area of social innovation 
to find new solutions to all the problems. So um, I remain optimistic. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and being with us here today. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.